0: You want to start with First Samuel chapter nine. First Samuel chapter nine is where we're going to kick off. So last week um, we were looking at um, different characters. For the last several weeks, we've been looking at different biblical characters, and tonight we are on King Saul. Um, next Wednesday night, Lord willing, we will be on the subject of David. So if you want to look or or uh, dig ahead or read ahead or just kind of inquire ahead. Um, It kind of gives you an idea of who we've been talking about, who we are talking about. Of course, we're not going to talk about every single person mentioned in the Bible. Rather, we're just talking about the main ones, the big ones, the ones you hear a lot. And when it comes to all three of these, all these characters that we're looking at, both male and female, we're asking three main questions. Who were they? Why do we know them? And what lessons do they teach us? So when we come to the person of Saul or King Saul, as he's um, listed many times in Scripture, we ask the question, well, who was he? Um, why do we know him? And what lessons does his life give us? So when we think about who was he, we're talking about just biographical, obituary-type information. Maybe who his father was, who his mama was, who his wife was, Who his kids were, anything factual or data driven about Saul. So what do we got? Who was Saul? Okay? He might know his father's name. Kish. Kish. Alright, so we get that out of First Samuel chapter 9, which is kind of why I say if you want to start in chapter 9, um, we get that in chapter 9 and in verse 1. It says, there was a man, a Benjamin, whose name was Kish, the son of Abel, the son of Zeor, the son of Begoroth, the son of Aphia, um, a Benjamite, a man of wealth, and he had a son whose name was Saul. So, right there at the very beginning, of 1 Samuel chapter 9, we get the idea that he um, His dad's name was Kish, but then it also gives us an address of where he was in the whole... if you would think, maybe the setup of the 12 tribes. And so at this point, you had the 12 tribes of Israel. The Levites were sectioned off because they were the religious tribe. And so they took the two sons of Joseph and split them up. Alright, so you have really 12 tribes that took an inheritance. The Levites did not take an inheritance. So when it comes to the tribes, they have a way of kind of identifying themselves, not only of the household or the clan they were a part of, but then they talk about the tribe. They were a part of. So if you look there in uh, chapter 9 and verse 21, Saul, when he's describing his family, he says, am I not a Benjamite? from the least of the tribes of Israel and is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin. So what Saul is saying is is his family was the weakest or maybe the, the uh, less established of the least established they were the smallest family out of the smallest tribe out of all the tribes. So he's saying hey we were just a bunch of nobodies down here. So when you think about who was he not only was he the son of Kish but he also talks about his standing in that time it wouldn't matter who your daddy was, who your family was, what tribe you were in that talked about kind of your standing and your predicament. Some of these young people that are like down there right now, some of these young people that are in high school and uh, I'll, they'll introduce themselves and they always give me their first name. I always follow it up and say, give me your last name because the way I try to place them is with their last name and that's how so many times I think about it is what is their last name? So that is how I try to put them in my little mental map of who's related and how they're all related. So Saul, he's the son of Kish. Um, think about where he's at as far as family life. Do we know anything about a mother? No, nope, not, mother's not named. All right. What about a wife? Yes. yes. A wife and a concubine. A wife and a concubine. All right. Anybody? Where you, do you remember where you got that from, Peter? Okay. Alright, so if you go... That's alright. That's okay. That's why we're doing this together. So you go to chapter 14, and you go to verse 50 in chapter 14, and we see the name of Saul's wife. And in 14 and verse 50, it describes Saul's wife, and her name was, and I'm going to butcher it, Um Ahinoam, ahino, Um You can pronounce it however you want to. She's not going to tell you any different. All right, so you can just A H I N O A M. All right, it is listed there as that is the name of the wife. So it says in verse fifty, and the name of Saul's wife was Da 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 Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahizmas Ahimas So that would be Saul's father-in-law. Um, something if you're bored got insomnia, can't sleep if you want something to do idea would be to look at the father of Saul's wife or Saul's father-in-law and trace this out on who he is why do I say that? Because this same name which I think we all agree is a rather unique name for, for a man the father-in-law of Saul his name A.I. H-I-M-A-A-Z that name is not only used here in 14 and um, for- Fifty, but then ten times in Second Samuel, from Second Samuel chapter fifteen to chapter eighteen, that same name is used ten times, referring to a person. Then you get to First Kings, and it's used once. First Kings four, and in First Chronicles chapter four or First Chronicles it's used or First Chronicle six, it's used four times. Now, why do I think that matters? Well, because you get over to Second Samuel and Ahima's is one of the guys that ran to report the news of the death of Saul. Now, why does this matter to me? Because if Saul is married to this man's daughter, but then when Saul dies, this is one of the men that pretty much did the marathon run to run to tell the people that Saul had died. It's hard for me to imagine that, you know, the father in law. You know, being in that kind of physical fit shape that he's going to run and tell—I I don't know—but it was just something I came across that I thought. I wonder if it's the same person or if it's just the two different people but the same name. I don't know. So if you find that name elsewhere in Scripture, I don't know if it's the same person or if it is the same person. But if you get over there to Second Samuel chapter fifteen through verse, chapter eighteen and you see all those references, you might understand why I wonder if they're if they're not just two different people. It's a whole side trail, bored, don't have anything to do. Alright, so let's come back to Saul. So he's got a father named Kish, don't know anything about his mother. He's got a wife um, named know. got an idea of who his father-in-law was. Does Saul have any children? Yes? Yes. Two? Okay. Does he have any more? Just two, two children, period? Two sons, two daughters? Two daughters? Two daughters? He's, got he's got a concubine. Yeah, okay. Where do you see that at? In the Bible. Yeah. yeah. Wait, wait, wait. Okay. Yeah, we don't, yeah. Okay. We're all, we don't That's that. Okay. So, you said he's got two daughters and he's got some sons. sons. Three sons? Two sons. Two sons? Six. Three? three, Okay. Six. Six? He's got one son with his wife and two daughters and then two sons with his compromise. Okay. Yes. Is that... Consensus? Yes? No? Alright, so again, you look at chapter 14 and you look at verse 50. It says the name... Uh, blah, 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 no, sorry, verse 49. The sons of Saul were Jonathan, Ishvi, um, Malchishua, and the names of his two daughters were the names of the firstborn, was Merib, and the name of the younger, Michael. Now, Terry, where were you saying that you saw as far as the sons of the concubine? Just in the little notes in my Bible. Okay, that's a study note. Okay. So so we know that he had children, alright, and we know that he had multiple children. Um, Jonathan is a son that is uh, very much in view later on. That's where you see in chapter four, uh, chapter 14 and verse 49 the sons of Saul were Jonathan. The other two you don't see very much. Then when it comes to the two daughters, you know about Michael, because she plays into the story later when it comes to David, um, but not a lot of, known as Mereth, but you know that he had at least a wife, concubine, and and multiple sons and multiple daughters. Anything else we know about Saul? Fact-wise, he was anointed by Samuel. He was anointed by Samuel. Okay. The first king. What? The first king. That was okay. So, um, and those two both can play really well into why do we know him. So this just kind of, I'm going to start back in chapter 9, and we're just going to work through a a chronological, if you will, just a timeline of why we know who Saul is. So we think about who he was. The second question is, is why do we know him? What is it about Saul that would make him stand out where we would be sitting here in 2023 talking? About this guy named Saul that lived thousands of years ago. So let's just kind of work timeline. Don't have a lot about his childhood. Really, when we pick him up, he is a young adult. It says in chapter 9 and in verse 2, it talks about his appearance. It said that he was handsome. Um a handsome young man, there was not a man among the people, more handsome than he. He was shoulders upward. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of any of the people. So, talking about his physical appearance, not only was he taller than everybody, but he was one hunk? Is that still a word? Hunk? Hunk. Okay, so he was just one studly looking hunk. Alright? So, okay. Well, I just, I'm just i just trying to, you know, stay hip. So, it's just the idea that he was a very attractive person. But then, you look at 1 Samuel chapter 9 and verse 15, is really where we get to know Saul. And why do we get to know Saul? Is because he was chosen by God. If you get there to verse 15, it says, now the day before Saul came, and I'm skipping some of this, you can go back and read it, but it says the Lord had revealed to Samuel, tomorrow by this time I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. And so God was the one that chose Saul. It wasn't that they had a popularity contest. It wasn't that they took nominations and they voted as a people. It wasn't that they had some type of a beauty pageant. It wasn't that he was some military general that had risen up through the ranks of government and uh, was popularized in the people. He was pretty much a nobody. Samuel, they'd already rejected Samuel. Remember we talked about this last week. They'd say, Samuel, you're getting ready to die. Your two boys are crooked, rotten. We don't want them to be in charge of us. We want a king. Samuel says, no you don't. They said, yeah we do. Samuel says, no you don't. They said, yeah we do. And God said, give them a king. So then the question is, well out of the entire nation of Israel, who's going to be the king? And you can just imagine everybody kind of thinking about how they're going to bring this about. God comes in here in in 1 Samuel chapter 9 and God's the one that picks him out. He was chosen by God. God said, alright Samuel tomorrow there's going to come a guy he's looking for some donkeys that ran off from his dads, him and a guy, they've been looking for these donkeys, they're going to show up, you're going to tell him the donkey's been found, you're going to take him for supper, you're going to give him uh, the the, uh, place of honor at the banquet, and then after, maybe supper or lunch, could have my timing down, but after the meal, then you're going to anoint him king. Okay, so that's what happens in 1 Samuel chapter 9. God's the one that chose Saul. But then after He is anointed king, and this is now 1 Samuel chapter 10, after He is anointed king and He leads the people... And it has some victories. It says there in chapter 10 and verse 24, And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him who the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king! So what do we know about Saul? We know about him because God chose him. And then not just God chose him, but then the people accepted him. So now, this entire nation of Israel is saying, That's our guy. That is our king. That is part of the reason why we know him, and it plays into the story as it continues to unfold. Next big thing we see out of Saul is in chapter 11. And he is uh, one of the first things that he does as king is not some type of a government project, but it's a military conquest. He defeats the Ammonites. Does anybody remember who the Ammonites are? You get an extra star if you can tell me who the Ammonites are. <laughs> Two stars. Two stars? Three stars? Are they the ones that uh, convinced the Israelites when they first took over that they were from the other time? Four stars? First stars, first stars. All right. So you may, uh, if you if you write anything down, you may write down Genesis chapter nineteen, verse thirty-eight. So you remember, you got to go all the way back. You got to go back in your history rolodex. Um, you got to go back. All right. So you've got Lot and his wife, and Lot and his wife have how many daughters? Dude. Two, right? So they have two daughters. They're down there in Sodom, right? And the angel of the Lord goes down there. The two angels show up and they say we're destroying Sodom, right? And they get Lot and his wife and his two daughters and they're dragging them out of the city, right? The Lot's wife looks back behind her. She turns into the pillar of salt. Lot and his two daughters then escape and as the story picks up in Genesis 19, they're now in a cave. Is any of this starting to ring a bell? Alright, so now they're in a cave. And while they're sitting in the cave, you got daddy and you got two daughters. Two daughters go, hmm, we need some kids. So Jerry Springer stuff. So, oldest daughter gets dad drunk, sleeps with dad one night. Whatever reason, the next night. The second daughter gets dad drunk again. You think dad would like? Hmm, I'm onto this trick. I know what's going on. Whatever. So the second night, younger sister gets dad drunk and also gets pregnant by dad. So now you have Lot, and he is now impregnated both of his daughters, and both of his daughters now have children, boys. And out of those two boys, out of the first daughter comes the Gethsemane. Moabites. All right, comes the Moabites. And out of the second daughter, this is why I tell you Genesis 19 and verse 38. Because out of the second daughter comes the Ammonites. Alright? So, you say, why in the world does that matter, Spence? Well, because somewhere down the road, they are related. Okay? Now, obviously, they've gotten crossways since. Alright? Obviously, they're not on the best to speak in terms of this point. But you get back to 1 Samuel 11, and you see whenever Saul is going out to destroy the Ammonites, you kind of have an idea. So now we know where the Ammonites are coming from. So he goes out, and that's chapter 11, and in verse 11, he destroys He put... um, Let's see... Well, verse eleven just says that he pretty much destroyed, he defeated all of the Ammonites. So you have a lot of people in Israel going, "Hey, this is our God. He can military lead us. He's really good looking. All the girls like him, and he's taller. So when we're all sitting there in formation, he can see in front of us because he's all he's ahead of us. He's taller than all of us. So they're like that. That's our God. So then you get down to chapter fourteen, and you see another picture of why um, he was the guy. Why? we know about him, because of his military victories. Chapter 14, verse 47. When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all of his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom. Who's Edom? What? What? Esau. That's right. So you have the descendants. So he talks about, he fought against the Moabites, alright? That's Lot's son slash grandson. Alright? So he fought against the Moabites, then he fought against the Ammonites, another one of Lot's sons slash grandsons. Then he fought against Edom, and then he fought against the king Sezoba, and against the Philistines, and wherever he turned he routed them, and he did valiantly, and he struck the Amalekites, and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. So what the scripture is recording is that everywhere he went, he was having military victory over and over and over again. And so as the scripture is unfolding, we're just seeing this guy and he is on a roll. If he is at the casino playing dice, he's like he cannot lose. See that's good. Just A lot of you looking like I don't know what he's talking about. That's that's good. That's good. Some of you're lying, but some but most of you. I'm going to take the most of you that you that you're actually being that you're actually being serious. You have no idea what I'm talking about. That's good. All right. So so the reason why we know about him, all right, because he's just on a um, whale of a roll. And in that time, it wasn't like they had borders set up and sovereignty. I mean, it was just one of those things that you had to defend your territory. You had to defend your people. And so when he is rising up and he's raising up Israel's not only the prominence but to the power and their ability to exercise their influence with their people around them. So everybody is like, hey, we're on Team Saul. But then, chapter 15. And we're going to come back to chapter 15 at the very end, so we're not going to spend a lot of time here right now. Chapter 15 and verse 26. Like I said, I'm going to come back. And we're going to save some time at the end. We're going to come back and look at this story. But there's one snippet that kind of tells, kind of summarizes the entire chapter of chapter 15. Verse 26, And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And from that moment we see that God has now rejected Saul as being king, and now God is going to turn his direction, and he then goes, and we looked at this last time, last week, he then goes and he chooses David for David to be the next king. All of that sets up when Saul realizes that David's been chosen. Well, now Saul, he's like, he's king, and he doesn't want to abdicate. Now, whatever that word is that you set, step, step, what? So he didn't want to abdicate the throne. So now he's got David. And he knows David's the next guy. But he doesn't want David to be the next guy. So he's like, I need to get rid of this guy. And that's where you get all those stories in, in 1 Samuel about him trying to kill David. He's trying to find a wrong in David. He's trying to find a reason to kill David. Because Saul says, I want to stay king. And then after I am dead, I want my children to take on the lineage and take over the throne and I don't want David to take over so you see a lot of where this takes a nasty turn in chapter 15 where then Saul then is on the hunt for David because he knows that David was chosen by God to be the future heir and he's like I don't want that and so one of the things that Saul does is he realizes there's a relationship now this is going to be chapter 18 he realizes a relationship that Michael his daughter is in love with David and it gets word that David kind of thinks that She's cute. No, not cute. She thinks he's cute. He thinks she's pretty. Alright, so there's some there's some twitter pating going on to come back from the baby term, okay? So you got a little love romance going on there. And so Saul thinks to himself, Huh, I got a plan. So he says, Hey oh David boy. Um, this is chapter 18, so you don't think I'm making it up. Chapter 18 and verse 25. Then Saul said, Thus you shall say to David, the king desires no bride price, talking about his daughter Michael, um, except for Lost my place. Except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged on the king's enemies. Now, we're not gonna go into graphic detail about what all that that is describing, but the Philistines is a nation, their males were not circumcised. So what is he saying? He is saying, David, if you want to marry my daughter, you need to bring me a hundred foreskins from the Philistines. Now, they don't sell that. At Costco. Was Walmart closed that day? The what? Was Walmart closed that day? Out of stock. Okay. <laughs> so David hears, Saul said you can marry his daughter if you bring him a hundred foreskins. So David. <laughs> verse uh, the last part of verse 26 into verse 27 before time had expired David arose and went along with his men and killed 200 of the Philistines and David brought their foreskins which were given in full number to the king that he might become the king's son-in-law now let me just give you a couple of things that comes out of this twisted mind of mine got a few a couple questions so here's how it plays out of my mind. David and his guys come through there. Whack, you're dead. Well, we don't need the whole body. We just need a part. So who's going to do that? Remove the part. And then, how do we make sure, how do we keep count? So here's my mind. Somebody's got a Walmart sack. all right? Somebody's got a Walmart sack. It's going from person to person to person. And as David's soldiers are, Removing the desired part of the body and the guy's holding the Walmart sack and they're throwing him in the Walmart sack and he's one, two, count. And then it's like, can you imagine? I lost count. And so now he's digging in there trying to figure out what the count was. In my mind, I'm just going, terrible. And then, and then, and then, see, so you're like, you're thinking I'm, I'm crazy. I am. But, and then, think about it. So then they roll into the palace of Saul, and Saul's like, what do you got? And they're like, you know what? We don't have just 100. We have 200. Well, someone had to count to say, yeah, that's 200, for them to write it here in chapter 18. Now, if you want to be known as the guy that killed a bunch of guys... So you could rob from their private parts. You go right ahead. But I think there's some things, I mean, like, you know how you have, like, in high school, you know, kids get names and that name sticks with them. It's like a nickname. I mean, it's like, I wonder, like, if in heaven, if they got a nickname for David. I I just kind of wonder how that works out. And then if you're Saul and you're thinking, why did you choose that? As a bride price. Now you could have said, I mean, because what he wanted was, he wanted David to go down to try to take the foreskins, and as he is trying to take the foreskins, then the Philistines are like, nope, not today. And they snuffed David out, killed David, and that's the end of the problem, right? So that's what's going through Saul's head. Now you would think, if Saul said, I want to send David down there to get David killed, why didn't he say, hey, I want the left ear? Out of stock. I, out of stock. <laughs> I want every person's right pinky finger. I mean, all their tongues. I mean, why would Saul? The first thing Saul says is, "I want their." <laughs> and then, what do you do with two hundred? <laughs> what would you? I, I, I don't get it. I don't get it. But part of the story, and I think it's something that sometimes, you know, you hear people say, oh, the Bible is boring. Oh, I don't understand the Bible. Oh, the Bible, there, there's nothing in it that I can relate to, that I can, that I can find enjoyment in. There's all kinds of story in the Bible that you're looking at this going, what? I don't understand it. I don't get it, but it's there, and that means it's true, and that means there's a reason that God puts it in there for us. So, he tries to kill David several times. He ends up being, talking about Saul again, he ends up being the father-in-law of David, because David then marries Michael, and then, chronologically, logically you get down there to chapter 32 chapter 32 is sorry chapter 31 Chapter 31 is the last chapter in 1 Samuel. Alright, so the the whole 1 Samuel ends with the death of Saul. And then 2 Samuel opens up, and that's kind of the the main focus of 2 Samuel is on David. So, you have Saul, that's why we know him, because God chose him, because the people accepted him, because of his military conquest, um, because of his military victories, disobeying God, father-in-law to David tried to kill David multiple times, but then the way he dies. Chapter 31 and verse 2. The Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan, and um, Abinadab, and Malchishua, the sons of Saul. And the battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. And Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised, (laughs) these weren't the ones that David talked to, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not do it, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all those men, on the same day together. What a sad ending to this life. Now Saul was told, he was told by Samuel, if you remember, whenever Saul goes to the witch at Endor and says get me Samuel, Samuel comes up and he goes, hmm, yeah, yeah, no, you didn't want to bring me back from the dead. You're going to die. All your sons are going to die all at the same time. Samuel predicted this, but still Saul is sitting there and Saul watches his three sons die. And he knows if the enemy gets a hold of him, he's scared of what the enemy is going to do for him. And so then he ends up committing suicide. And this whole idea that you fall on your sword is just something that really um, is such a sad way to die. Now we don't know exactly well. I wasn't there, but I'm assuming you take the sword and either you thrust it through or you set it in such a place that when you fall on it, it impales you and stabs you. What happens if you miss? Pick yourself up and do it again. Well, you might pick yourself up and do it again. I mean, I just kind of sit there and think to myself, or was it instantaneous, or did you sit there and I mean have a sword coming through and all of a sudden sticking out your backbone and you're alive for 30 minutes while you're writhing in pain and you're bleeding out? What a miserable way to die! He asked his armor bear, "You, it. His armor bear is like, no. <laughs> "What a sad way to go!" All because, all because, all because, all because. And we'll get to that in a minute. But what a sad, what a sad way to die. You know, there's some lives that you see that you just think they deserved a better ending than that. For Saul and his military conquest and all of his military experience, I mean, at least die, mono a mono, in a sword fight. At least die with an archer that takes you right through the skull. I mean, at least die in something heroic, magnificent. I mean, at least die. What was the, oh, I'm going to butcher the name. starts with an A, it wasn't an Abimelech. It was a guy that was going against the tower, and the woman threw the millstone out from the tower, and it landed on top of his head. I mean, at least die. I mean, at least something. I mean, like where somebody's like, yeah, he. it was a rough way to go, but he, you know. Just think, how sad, how sad of an ending. Now, I'm not saying that Saul was an upstanding model of the kind of people we should be, but at the same time, for everything that he had accomplished, everything that he had done, his whole influence in the nation of Israel, and then to die by committing suicide. So, kind of think, why do we know him? Alright? Anything else that that I might have missed or that pops out to you, as far as that sticks in your mind, as far as why do we know who Saul is? Anybody else? Okay, so let's go back to chapter 15. So let's talk about some lessons. Some lessons that he teaches. Alright, so you go back to 15. Chapter 14 and verse 47, we read about all the military victories he was having. Man, he was just, he was on top of the mountain. Everybody was scared of him. He was beating up everybody that came around. Chapter 15 verse 1 Samuel said to Saul the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people of Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. So this is God speaking through Samuel to Saul Verse 2, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Now, does anybody remember why God has a grudge against Amalek? They ambushed the people Taking out women and children instead of actually fighting facing the men. Right? So where do you remember in the Bible where we see Amalek first show up? Genesis chapter 17. Remember the people get across the what? So they get out of Egypt, right? And they've come across the Red Sea. And they're headed down to Mount Sinai. And on the way, the Amalekites pretty much ambush, attack the nation of Israel. Moses is like, Joshua, get you an army together. Joshua grabs an army. They're down in the valley. Remember this? They get down in the valley and they're fighting. So this is, uh, I shouldn't say... that is Exodus. So they're down there, Exodus 17, and they're down there, and as long as Moses has his hands up, Joshua and the people are winning, right? Hands get tired, they lift him up, that whole story right there in Exodus chapter 17. But these are the Amalekites, okay? So even though Joshua beat the Amalekites, he did not completely eradicate the Amalekites. So it's like God said, alright Saul, now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go, and I want you to completely wipe the Amalekites of the neighborhood completely eradicated and he says God says through Samuel to Saul go and strike them to devote destruction all that they have do not spare them but kill both man and woman child and infant ox and sheep camel and donkey so yes 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 and dogs lots of dogs (laughs) you. <laughs> so you have God. And this is, this is the first lesson I want you to think about. God reveals Himself. Not only to Samuel, but He reveals Himself to Saul. And He says, this is what I want you to do. That's what we have when we have the Bible. We have God's revealed Word to us. God says... This is what I want you to do. This is what I don't want you to do. This is right. This is wrong. God reveals himself to us the same way that God revealed himself to Saul. So Saul didn't walk away going, hey, I wonder what I'm going to do tomorrow. Let's take a poll. No, Saul walked away saying, God wants me to do this. And God does the same thing for us. God reveals it in his word and says, this is what you should do. There's not a single one of us that have any excuse to wake up in the morning and go, I have no idea what God wants me to do today. Because God has very clearly told us. He wants us to love him. He wants us to love other people. He wants us to tell people about Jesus. He wants us to be faithful to the kingdom. I mean, there's all sorts of things and all sorts of places where God tells us what he expects for us. So God reveals himself to Saul. Then, verse 4. So Saul saw some of the people and numbered them. 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. So they go and they start fighting. Look down at verse uh, 8. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, and devoted destruction to all the people with the edge of the sword. Verse 9, but Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen of the fat and calves and the lambs and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them. If you look back to verse 9, it's very key. But Saul and the people, God said, You're of old. Saul and the people said, Hey, let's keep the best. Now, there's all kinds of excuses. Oh, we're going to keep it for an offering. We're going to keep it for a sacrifice. Whatever it was, it was all in disobedience against God. So even if they said, we're going to do it as an offering, God said, vote it all the destruction. So you have this people. God said, do this. They then chose to define what was obedience. God said, do it. Decided, well, we're gonna do what God said partly, and we're gonna choose our own way. There's a lesson there. We do not have the authority or the prerogative to define obedience. God has told us what obedience is. We don't get to come back and go, well, you know what? I did it, I did eight out of the ten things, God. Or I did a 50%, God. Or, God, you better be glad I did 60%. I didn't have to do the sixty percent. No, God says this is what obedience looks like. But it says in verse nine, Saul and the people spared them and did not and would not utterly destroy them. God tells Samuel. Samuel comes and he confronts Saul, and it says down in there in verse thirteen. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, "Bless me to you, the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord." So Saul shows up. You see, Samuel's like, Samuel, my good old pal. God is good. I did everything that God told me to do. Verse 14. Samuel said, Then what is the bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? So Saul shows up and says, Samuel, we did it. And Samuel's like, Then why do I hear sheep and cattle? Didn't hear the dogs or the horses, but why do I hear the sheep and the cattle? in the distance. So Saul then says, Oh, well they have brought them from the Amalekites for the people spread the best of the sheep and of the oxen to the Lord your God and the rest of have voted for destruction. So he said, Oh, no, no, no. We've kept this as a moral, as an offering, as a tribute to God. And then Samuel said to Saul, Stop. I will tell you what the Lord has said to me this night. And then Saul said to Samuel, then speak on. You get down there to verse 22, and we see where Saul, or Samuel, cuts to the heart of the issue. He says, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? So God was very clear. God revealed Himself to Saul, said, this is what I want you to do. Saul then goes, redefines what means to be obedient, redefines what is right and what is wrong, and then comes to God and saying, Hey God, you know what? I brought you an offering. And God says, I am not concerned with your offering, I am more concerned with your obedience. Translation, it doesn't matter if you bring a check for $10,000 and put it in the church's offering on Sunday you're not being faithful to the lord you're not going to outgive your sin and that's the issue that Saul is in Saul is sitting in a situation that he didn't do what God had told him to do even though he knew exactly what God had told him to do and Samuel is going you're missing the point God doesn't need your money God doesn't need the animals God doesn't need your ideas God is desiring your obedience and that is then you get down to verse 26 it says so not only did God reveal himself to Saul not only did Saul then seek to redefine what it means to be obedient but then Samuel reminds Saul that disobedience has consequences so that's why you get back down to verse 26 and it says you have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel so from that point on, Saul knew that God had rejected him, not because God was a mean God, or not because, Samuel, not because Saul failed some type of written test, or didn't have the aptitude, or the people revolted against him. God rejected him as king over Israel, and that was a lasting consequence, even though Saul um, has some type of a heart of contrition to Samuel, we don't see, at least I don't see, in the remaining pages of Sir Samuel, where he then repents and confesses himself to God. He admits his wrong to Samuel, but he never really gets down there and begs for mercy from God. However, God says there is a consequence for your disobedience. And we are living in a day and age that people want to say, well, as long as I say I'm sorry, then that means I should take away any consequence. No, there's always still consequences for your disobedience. I get pulled over. What? Do you know how long from the time he was anointed until God said that? I do not. Because it doesn't give us timestamps. stamps. We can we can guess, and maybe some of your study bibles. Maybe there's some scholars that um, looked at extra biblical sources. I mean, because you have historical writers, and maybe they're trying to cross reference stuff. But not um, even if it was like uh, a year or five years or yeah. I, I don't see. I, I didn't come across anything, Harold, as far as a timestamp of it had been ten years or five years or twenty years. Mm-hmm. Um, you know what? I get, I get pulled over by the, by the police. I can tell the policeman, police person, I can tell the police person I'm sorry that I speed. <laughs> the, the police person can still give me a ticket, but I can be sorry. And I can even think I shouldn't have done that, dummy. I can even be remorseful. But there's still a consequence. And, and, and you can get away with it sometimes. Sometimes? And then, eventually... <clears throat> living in a day and age that we are increasingly a people that think well there should not be consequences for my actions and we're reminded all throughout scripture that our disobedience carries consequences and those consequences may be a day. Those consequences may be a week. We have no idea how long those consequences may last. And we're not, we do not get to determine the length of those consequences. We are, at the, we are at the whim of God at that point. But we're reminded. And there's a lesson there. God reveals His Word to us. And then when we try to redefine obedience, consequences may come. And I think we need to be reminded, when we think about Saul, we think about the way he died, we think about how sad, all the things he had for him. I mean, he was the first king of Israel. Pretty much he could do it, and nobody could come in and go, Saul, we haven't ever done it like that before. In and they say, well, you know the last guy, he did it this way. I mean, he was the new guy and everybody loved him. In chapter 14, everybody thought he was the greatest guy in the world That everybody was on his side. Even in chapter 15 when he went down the Amalekites. He, it wasn't like that all the people said, no, we are not going to destroy everything. He could have done whatever he wanted to. He had the freedom, he had the opportunity, and he had the availability to be completely obedient to God. But he chose to reject the word of God I think it's sobering to think about all the times that I've rejected God's word and yet God's mercy continues to be more than I deserve so when we think about the lessons from Saul let us not take his mercy for granted let us not just assume on the mercy of God But let's be reminded this evening that God has given us His Word. He's told us what obedience looks like. And we are warned that there are consequences for disobedience. And so let us not be surprised when there's consequences for our disobedience against God. What else out of Saul did I miss?